in 1996. After nearly two decades spent touring the American Midwest with his heavy metal band Starfed, cult guitar hero Orrin Moon disappeared without a trace. Despite dozens of distraught fans, the music industry barely noticed his absence. While law enforcement assumed Moon had simply fled the country or joined a religious commune, for nearly two more decades, the true story went untold. Then, in early 2016, a music journalist for National Independent Radio received an unmarked package that contained over 200 dated micro-cassettes with a handwritten letter that read, This is the story of Orrin Moon. He was an amazing musician, a loving father, and the best demon slayer the world never knew. Created by L. David Hessler. Part 4. We should never have gone back to the funeral home. That damn place was like a black hole. We couldn't escape its pool no matter how hard we tried. Like it was trying to swallow us. The message from the pudgy man had been so frantic. It sounded terrified and confused. I felt for him too, I really did. At least I was sharing this whole experience with Mel. I had someone to share the burden. He was by himself. I told Mel it was time to get out of town. It'd be easy. Pack some bags, grab a bite to eat, and get the hell out of Dodge. But Mel insisted on going back to the funeral home. Said we needed to find out what was happening. I said, let the cops figure this shit out. She said, screw the cops. This is too weird for them. I wanted to tell her it was too weird for us. Too weird for anyone. When we got there, the place was silent. Like, ghost town quiet. Lights were off, no music, nothing. It felt like we were trespassing. Like, maybe the place was just closed and we were breaking a few laws by being there. Come to think of it, I guess we probably were. A funeral home is one of those places I just can't get used to visiting. Like hospitals and police stations, but way worse. It must be hard to build a tolerance to death and sadness. 
It has to be hard to develop that unnatural numbness that keeps you from sobbing every time you see someone in a coffin. And then, even the people who work in these places and think they've overcome that lingering sense of morbid finality, do they ever truly get comfortable with it? Can they walk into a morgue without getting goosebumps? Can they seal a coffin without feeling that nagging pang of regret? Is it overwhelming to be the last person to set eyes on a dead body before it's locked away forever? How does a person live with that kind of relationship with the dead? We wandered past the mortician's office. The door was open and the desk was covered in paperwork. A set of car keys rested next to a half-filled mug of coffee. There was this scent in the air, like copper and chocolate swirled together. Mel called out to see if anyone was in the building. Nobody answered. I told her we should leave, that this didn't feel right. She agreed. It didn't feel right to her either. And then, then we heard it. A lone voice from the parlor, like, like a snake crawling out of the dark, mimicking the very thing we'd heard from outside of my apartment. Time's wasting. The voice in the parlor laughed. It sounded like someone stirring broken teeth into a cup of pudding. Then it spoke again. Time is wasting, kiddo. It was what the corpse of Warren Moon had said outside my apartment door. The parlor had been closed off with a sliding partition. I found a light switch in the hallway. It turned on the light in the parlor, but not in the hall. A slice of bright fluorescent light erupted from the bottom of the fake wood panels in the partition. Mel stood with her face nearly touching the divider. Her hand hovering inches from the handle used to slide it through the track in the ceiling. She said, Who are you? Friend or family, the voice said. Family, friend. Time is wasting, my lady. Mel's eyes bulged and she yanked the partition open, flooding the hallway with blinding light from the other side. Sitting on the front pew in the parlor was the pudgy man we met at the funeral. His suit was still too tight, but that was the least of his problems. His, his throat, his throat had been slit from ear to ear. The collar and breast of his suit were soaked in blood. His arms were stretched out to either side of the pew as if he expected us to come and sit down next to him. At first, I thought someone else had been talking. I panicked at the sight of the pudgy man's body and I started looking all around the parlor for his murderer. It was impossible that the voice we heard was coming from him. He was dead. I should have known better.
Time is wasting, milady, the pudgy man said again. His lips moved like earthworms after a heavy rain, wriggling aimlessly. I, I don't know how it was possible. Quit gawking, he grunted, and start walking. Mel glanced at me. Big Daddy Mal wants to have a word, the pudgy man said, laughing that churning tooth and chocolate chuckle again. Blood spurted out of his gaping esophagus and landed on the floor by his feet. And that's when I noticed the black mud that surrounded his shoes. It was like the stuff in Orin's eyes, or the old woman at Mel's apartment. I told Mel we should leave. But instead, she moved closer, like she was sneaking up on something. She moved, slow and deliberate, until she was only about a foot away from the pudgy man's motionless body. Look at this, she said, gesturing for me to come closer. I said, like hell. She pointed at the wound in his throat, and at first I thought she just wanted me to look at the size of the gash. But then I saw the sausage-like object protruding from his trachea. It was a finger. It was a finger, and it was moving. It looked rotten and skeletal, like it had been yanked right off another corpse's hand. It wiggled in the wet maw of the pudgy man's slit throat, like it was gesturing for us to come closer. Mel took out the bag of weed she had taken from her apartment and regarded it for a few moments, as if silently bidding it farewell. Then she opened it and, using her index finger and thumb with surgeon-like delicacy, she pulled the severed digit from the pudgy man's throat. He was speaking as she did it, telling her again that time was wasting. But as soon as the finger was gone, his voice went away. Like she'd unplugged an amplifier. She dropped the finger into the bag and we watched in horror as it continued to wiggle and move on its own, turning and curling in handfuls of cheap marijuana. Mel stormed out of the funeral home, waving for me to follow. I stole one final look at the pudgy man's body before deciding this was the last time I'd ever be so close to a corpse. And it was true. I mean, until we left town. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bad Notes, written and produced by me, L. David Hessler. This is a work of fiction. Maybe. No magic was performed during the making of this episode. Probably. You can support the podcast by visiting patreon.com slash ldavidhessler. Definitely. This week's mixtape guest is Cloud Kicker. Find all of their music at cloudkickermusic.com or find them on Facebook. The title music is performed by Ethan Mikesell. Find more of his work at ethanmikesell.com. 
the voice of the National Independent Radio Journalist belongs to Adam Martins. His voice is also used to maximum effect on the B-Mega podcast, where we collaborate to create new superheroes every week. Check it out at megatoncitynews.com. This episode of Bad Notes is brought to you by Orb Industries. Their organization works tirelessly to make your life better. But did you know that they also want to do the same thing for your afterlife? The Orb Industries Research Initiative is currently accepting volunteers for its after-death reconciliation program. Your whole life was merely preparation for a better afterlife. Since Orb Industries refuses to share its website or physical address in public, there's a simple way to contact the research initiative. Stare deep into the center of a mid-autumn mud puddle and think about all the ways you could die. Choose one and whisper it into the water. Then sleep and dream. And one day, when you least expect it, Orb Industries will find you and they will take you and they will change you. All volunteers must be 21 years of age or older, wizards and witches are not allowed, and Orb Industries is not responsible for any long-lasting side effects experienced by volunteers or their families after treatment. Orb Industries, bridging the gap between life and death.